Abolition. Abolition. You know, uh, all of this uh, historical uh, perversity, again, continues to impact itself on, 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 on IET, but also on all of us. Because my position is what happens to IET happens to you as an African descendant. You know, last when we were supposed to talk back in July, it was just, uh, what, a couple of days after the Haitian uh, president, Jovenel Moïse, was assassinated. We were supposed to talk on the 11th. He was, he was murdered. He was slaughtered on the, on the 8th. Now, the first citizen of a country, a head of state, is at home in his bed asleep, and somebody can come up, or people can come up in, uh, in, in, in there. I don't know the word I really want to use, but I'll be polite. <laughs> but people can come up in there, mercenaries are coming up in his space, um, and, and, and breach his home and take away his life. What does that tell you as a person of African descent? You are not safe anywhere. We are not safe anywhere. We've had similar incidents happen to regular citizens in the United States. Sisters in her bed, um, police come in, take her life away. That's a regular citizen. And I'm not saying heads of states are more important than anybody else. But heads of state, in theory, are the most secure people on the planet. And yet they manage to do that to him. So what does that tell the rest of us? You know, that our lives, too, are in danger. Our lives, too, don't matter that way. Um, but it also tells us that we really need to be in a state of solidarity with one another, um, to know who we are, know each other's history, so that we're in a better position to um, prevent such things, um, to protect uh, ourselves and to protect each other. And, 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 and have a clearly articulated response to um, these kinds of dangers. Um, so that, that's actually something I would have talked about then, but I, I feel compelled to, and we still need to talk about now, uh, the need to create solidarity among us. And the work that we are, are doing with the Abolish Slavery uh, National Network is about that. So we're not looking at things just in the United States. We're looking at things globally um, because um, it is incumbent upon us. We need to create and sustain a meaningful solidarity. Solidarity. I've never seen a diamond in the flesh. Cut my teeth on wedding rings in the movies, and I'm not proud of my address. In a torn up town, no postcode envy. Now everybody's like, come on, let's celebrate. Finally, we're getting cake. Every day we hustle and trying to fill a dinner plate. We don't care. The other dogs don't have no fear. So if we sing about ghosts, these playback diamonds in our timepiece, you should raise a glass, help us free from the poverty. So unfair. Give us free from this love affair. Cause we're already royal. 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 Being a resident. 
count our dollars on the train to the party. And everyone who knows us knows that we are, we are, because we say we are. Now everybody's like, come on, let's celebrate. Finally, we're getting cake. Every day we hustling, trying to fill a dinner plate. We don't care. The underdog don't have no fear. So if we sing about gold seeds, playback, diamonds, and our timepiece, you should raise a glass, help us free from the poverty. So unfair. Give us free from this love affair. Cause we're already royal. Being royal. Being royal. our blood. We've just been having tough love. We need a different kind of fun. Let me be your ones who never had nothing. The first piece of the pie, we try and grab something. Uh-huh. and running, packing and gunning, lending the honey. Flashing in front and scared of everything, but call it nothing. We don't know that old true blue blood slave uh-huh. money. Slave money, war heroes take it to their grave uh-huh. money. Cotton money, cane money, diamond blood same money. Yeah. They tell us to save money, we don't get paid uh-huh. money. Only talking small yeah. money. Super five pack of pampers, black and mild money, mattress pie high money. We know sneaker fly money. We know racks and racks and racks and racks and racks money. What about that tax money? All money. Africa's rich soul money. So think you can't fold money. British East Indian company, all money, gold money, limestone, coal money. It's like the whole world is upside down. And the real royalty has been reduced to clowns, lost in the stars. And we don't know which way to go. They blew the nose off the sink, so we never know. We royal. Yeah. We royal. We're greater than they say we are. Yeah. So go ahead and call me star. Yeah. Oh, 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 oh,
City Council member and uh, currently the West Coast Regional Program Director at Ignite National and the Vice Chair of the Santa Clara Valley Open Space Authority. She's also one of the lead organizers behind California's bill to end involuntary servitude, that's ACA3. Later we'll be joined by Jihad Abdul-Mumit, who is the National Chairperson for the Jericho Movement and sits on the board of the Abolitionist Law Center. Jihad was a, a former domestic political prisoner who served 23 years of his life in prison for his involvement in the Black Liberation Movement. We'll also have great uh, information coming from our guests tonight. So, as always, we'll have an amazing. We have a music. Uh, sorry, we have amazing music, poetry, news updates on the abolitionist movement, and we'll bring the voices of the ancestors back to life for a new generation and our bridging the gap segment. So, before we start that, tell us uh, what you think of the open track, and you know a little bit about your past three weeks. Oh man, well, I was loving the open tra- the opening track, and just a, a, a note: uh, the song "Already Royal" by uh, Mama New Youssef was a play on Lord's song, which is royal, uh, called Royal as well. But mm-hmm. <laughs> she kind of reversed it. I love how she did that, and right, uh, you know, tied together with an actual queen speaking on this international incident that we're talking about with slavery going global. Uh, was very powerful opening. I hope everyone really got something out of that. Uh, as far as the past three weeks, man, whew, uh, it's been a little rough, but it's also been very busy. Like a lot of people in my family are having illnesses uh, up to and including surgery and things like that. And I've been down with the flu now for about a week and a half. Still today, I'm mm-hmm. kind of doped up. Uh, but it started off with a pleasure, me going back to my hometown of Patterson, New Jersey, and participating in the Patterson Poetry Festival as one of the featured artists. Uh, that was really nice to do, be home and uh, share some spoken word with them. I did a, a classic, What Happened to Hip Hop, of course, and I dropped no poetry on them and blew everybody's mind. That was cool. Also, getting to go with you to uh, Dennis Febo's new office in Jersey City for the Credible Messengers organization that he's formed there in Jersey that is working with uh, the Department of Corrections, with the, the uh, I mean, all across New Jersey, with judges, prosecutors, right. and police, to help save the lives of these kids out there, and who rather than have them go to juvenile detention, he's providing services that will bring them up and out of that uh, circumstance that they're facing prison and in the prison school to prison pipeline in his own way. So we got to be right. his first guest at the building. That was awesome. <laughs> Absolutely. And, that was a great experience. Right. Shout out to Debo. Friday, uh, I got to have an online discussion with the Vermont Racial Justice Alliance and Brother uh, Mark Hughes, uh, who you've heard here on this program before as a guest. Uh, he's running the campaign to remove the exception clauses, because there's two, from the Constitution of Vermont. And we had a fantastic conversation online. Uh, check them out at Racial Justice Alliance, Vermont Racial Justice Alliance, and uh, listen to that. It was very powerful. Uh, but, you know, out in Vermont, they're bragging about how they're the first state to abolish slavery in their constitution, but that's the exact opposite of the truth. The truth is they're the first ones to put that cunning-ass, sneaky-ass exception clause into their right. state constitution, and then they use it. And they didn't just put one exception clause in, they put two of them in there. You know, right. so 
You can be incarcerated or you can be enslaved. You can become state uh, property uh, for conviction of a crime or also not paying your bills and the like, whatever the like means. But it literally says exactly. bills, debts, and the like, <laughs> you know? So, yeah, that's been my week. What about you, bro? Uh, you know, uh, so I went down to Atlanta for Black Future Weekend. Uh, it was it was uh, hosted by Van Jones and uh, Dream Corps Network. And the, the goal was speaking about black future. So they, what, what Van said is, you know, we talk a lot about black history, but we never think about black future, you know, and how as the world becomes more and more technical, you know, a lot of us are being left behind. And so they want to create spaces to where we can teach technology to blacks and to you know, what they would say, underprivileged and underrepresented communities. Uh, they did mention a lot about uh, criminal justice. It wasn't like the basis of the platform, but it is on the table that they recognize that there is a problem with it and that something needs to be done. You know, didn't get a chance to, you know, speak with uh, Van himself, but, you know, I met a lot of interesting people there. There are, you know, many organizations that are involved in, especially when it comes to reentry, Ranchery programs, uh, giving people marketable skills to actually be able to compete, you know, nowadays, like we hear about uh, our guest later on, you know, Jamal uh, Abdul-Mumit, where he spent 23 years. You know, we had a lot of people coming home that have done a lot of time, and the world has drastically changed since they've last been home. You know, people that have been down in the 70s and 80s, you know, we got cell phones now. We have people, we have uh, uh Captain Kirk going to space and everything now. So it's all kinds of stuff going on. And so rather than keep our community just going for those jobs that are going to be obsolete within the next few years and we get so far left behind in technology and in finances that we're creating spaces for each other to be able to compete in the future. So that was sort of the basis of the weekend. And then, of course, you know, we have our classes, uh, that are teaching technology to people, you know, at Columbia University. And so that's going really well. And, you know, I'll be having a, a personal announcement coming up soon, you know, sometime in the future, major announcement that I'll be making. But uh been pretty much it, you know, for me for the past couple of weeks. Uh, like I said, big shout-out to Dennis and what he had going on in Jersey City. And I know that's going to be really huge moving forward, you know, and also just – Making other connections, we have uh, some potentials for next season. You know, we'll be talking about next season soon, you know, season three of Abolition Today. You know, some potential guests that we'll have coming on. So a lot of big things going on, Max, in those last couple of weeks. Yeah, these are our last few weeks uh, of this season, and I'm trying to think of how I want to take us out for the year. Uh, The only thing that you'll hear from us will be replays uh, after October 31st. Uh, and there'll be a couple of specials we'll put together because, you know, we do the max mixes and the USFXs throughout the year, mm-hmm. and it really captures the moment. So we're going to put that together in a sequence so that you can hear all of those uh, our New Year's. Uh, I, I think after listening to last year, I was like, we captured 2020 perfectly. Like in all the abolition 
uh, aspects, we we captured it perfectly. And I think we did it again right. this year. So through music and spoken word, poetry, and clips of news, you'll hear it come together in one two-hour segment. All right, with that being said, I want to go ahead and bring our first guest in, of course, which is a friend of ours. Uh, she is Shay Franco-Clausen, who is the former San – is that San Juan or San Jan? Uh, let me bring her in and ask her firsthand. There you go. Shay, you are with us here on Abolition Today. Is it San Jan City Council? No, no. So, actually, first of all, thank you for having me. It's always <laughs> great to talk to you, my brother. Let's yes. start there. Um, I'm actually the vice chair of the Santa Clara County Open Space Authority, which preserves and protects uh, sacred land, uh, water, agriculture that we depend on here in California. That's awesome. That is awesome. So that and also you're one of the key organizers behind the California ACA 3 abolition amendment, which is going to end involuntary servitude for the first time in the state of California, uh, the progressive state of California. But lately you've been running up against some uh, walls, man. We watched what happened with uh, sharp eyes during the last hearing. And how, oh, my God, it went out for, what, like nine hours or ten hours? Uh, right. Yeah. It was it was really tough because there was not a lot of communication between uh, um, us and a lot of the other people. And, and as we were facing a recall, you know, that became, like, the number one focus. And we just came up with, with a lot of deadlines. COVID wasn't helpful um, because – we had to end up fighting against all the bills that were in the state legislature at the time. So in, in addition, you know, as progressive as this state claims to be in many, many different ways, ending slavery still is not the top of their agenda. And wow. as we talk right. about reparations, you can't talk about reparations without talking about involuntary servitude. So I, I think that we are actually, thank you so much. Um, we're actually, um, Right now, working really hard because January is when this is going to hit the assembly floor. Now, what I'm doing, I'm here in actually San Diego right now with a bunch of legislators, and I'm trying to find out who's going to really stand with this movement to move California forward is to get rid of involuntary servitude. So, I mean, I I feel like the walls that we came up against is like there were so many of us advocating for so many criminal justice reform bills, which were necessary, right? The time is now. The movement is loud. But we still have some people that – say things, you know, out in public, but when it's time to make that vote, we can't depend on them. Right. Yeah. You know, I've been finding uh, in my view, the broad view that I get to have with the um, working with the states all across the union is that a lot of legislators are trying to portray this as symbolic, even though it's a constitutional amendment. (laughs) And to say it's symbolic is to say everything in the Constitution it's possibly symbolic when it isn't, but they're trying to portray it as that and treating it as that. And thus, as Yusuf pointed out last time we were on air, is when they put it on the list, it was number 41, even though it was the only constitutional amendment up for that day, you know, and they didn't want to bring it in for whatever reason. So you never actually got a vote. Has there any been, been any word on when the vote will come up? So, yeah, no, 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 that's a, a really great point. Um, January. So we're, I'm meeting with uh, uh, Senator Kamlegger on the 24th. We're going to read. We're going to talk about our next steps. Um, we have the vote. That's the crazy thing. It's like we do have you the got vote. The people, yeah. But we were, yeah. And we, it wasn't just our um, constitutional amendment that was 
um, not voted on. It was all of them. So they really focused on a very heavy, heavy legislative years in bills. But I figured, like, man, you were there with us. We was out there calling, advocating, and, and everything possible. That whole, what, three days of waiting for it to, to hit the floor? Yeah, and you it spent was just months planning for it. Yeah, we, we waited for this time. We worked really hard. And so I, I just think that two things. One, we need to, to also make sure that our legislators that are co-authoring it stand real strong and make sure that the speaker and the pro tem um, also know that this is a priority for us. And, and two is that we have to really show up this, this next in January and let them know that the same people that vote you in office are the same people in this coalition. And the same people that right. make sure that you have a seat are part of the same, the same people that are telling you right now we need you to pass this. So, and, and I just want to go back to what you said before about symbolic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is symbolic, but it's the first step. We also heard in talks of already writing an additional bill to hold key to it with CDCR. Because it's true. It is symbolic, but it's symbolic to, to them in a way. To us, it's, it's a part of justice. Yes, it's, it's, we have to do this in order to get to the next step of this process. You know what yeah. I mean? Uh, Absolutely. You can't say that this is a land of free or you're progressive as long as you're talking Mm -mm. about how slavery is legal. And give us some examples of how California exploits their prison uh, uh, system and the people who are in it. Oh, my God. You know, it's so funny. Not funny, but we were just talking about I'm actually formally incarcerated myself and an elected official. So, yes, once you can vote, you can run for office. Um, And in California, we really saw the truth of it even more. We had been screaming it for years during this COVID where they were impacted, like the businesses were impacted because COVID was there. They weren't getting enough people to work or things were shut down to where they were intentionally exposing our loved ones to Mm -hmm. COVID, losing lives in order to get them the, the antibodies up so they can get back to work. The people that benefit are the same people that we, we think about and use every single day from Walgreens to Verizon, from JCPenney's to American Airlines. And inside of our state prisons now, it's a system. It is a system that capitalized and it's state-funded exploitation of the most vulnerable workers in California. And, and so I, I really want to say is that when we think about our prison system, everyone first thinks of it as, oh, they've done a crime, this is what they deserve. But I'm like, we don't exploit workers. We stop child labor. You know, we're ending wage theft. We have these labor unions that are strong. Exploitation and exploitation, no matter where it's at. And California is, is you've seen San Quentin, the rise of COVID cases, <laughs> people dying inside of San Quentin, all the way down to Men's Colony, uh, uh, to, to Vacaville. All, all the prisons were trying to, the seals were getting people to get exposed, to get back to work. And if they didn't, third part of that is if they didn't, then they have, uh, this is another thing that's a problem. The CDR, CDCR cannot be the judge and the jury. And so mm-hmm. if they do not go to work, then they then put them on this little trial that gives them added times or takes away from their privileges. Don't let them talk to their loved ones when we're already not visiting our families for over two years. It's, it's just that's how bad it is here in this progressive, what they call blue state of California, is that we're mm-hmm. allowing this type of, of, of slavery of, of the mind, slavery of, you know, connection and slavery in the service inside of our state penitentiaries. One of the things that really blows my mind is about 
the way the elected officials in California think. Uh, for instance, mm. you know, the governor was just touting this $7 billion he found in his back pocket after a night out. He's like, where did that come from? I don't know. And I'm going to spend it this huh. way, that way, that way, right? But right. at the same time, they informed the incarcerated firefighters who are working for $2 a day plus one day off when they fight these uh, live fires that even if your time has expired and you're about to get out, we're not going to let you go because we need you. You're going to have to stay here. They didn't say, you know, we'll offer you actual firefighters pay for the time after that, plus bonuses and all that. We need your help. They didn't think that. No, it's let's enslave them. No. Let's say you're going to stay here, and we're going to make you do it for the same price you've been doing it for. That, I thought that was shameful. Right. This, I mean, it's disappointing, you know, and – and I look at our leadership, here we were just in this recent recall, right? We all stepped up again to make sure the lesser of two evils didn't happen. You know, and when we look at the impact of those people fighting fires, I mean, there's, there's hundreds of articles, right? Amika and Rashida, right on our, they're in our coalition. It wasn't a pathway for them to get jobs. And that's what the second part of it that really is sad is that, they have them doing things inside prisons that when they get out, they can't get jobs to do. So how is that going to be successful reentry if they can't have a job on the outside? And they frame it. I don't know if you know about Calpia, but they, that is the organization that oversees all this. And, and the governor actually point, he appoints the people to that board can utilize inmate labor. Mm-hmm. And, and, and 90% of the time, it's jobs that they can't get on the outside because they don't hire former incarcerated folks. So how does that make sense for California? How does that make sense for successful reentry? How does that make sense for any of us? It doesn't make any sense. And, you know, I often get asked as an abolitionist, well, what are you saying, that we shouldn't allow prisoners to work behind bars? And, no, that's not what we're saying either. And they also ask, well, what about, you know, if we, like they told Dennis, the Department of Justice told Dennis, how about if we just pay him more? <laughs> that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about, Forced labor, involuntary labor, period. To do things, whether you're holding time against them or uh, giving them, you know, these penalties that they get or punishing them for not working. If you're forcing somebody to work, you're treating them like property. And property, by the Harvard Bellagio rules that the United States has signed on to, is slavery. So, yeah, it's pretty rough. And, And I want to no, it's. I mean, t- it's it's outrageous. And one of the, go ahead, I, I, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no, no. Go ahead. Uh, one of the stories that really stood out for me also was, uh, and I want to get the details right, but I don't have the article, and it's been a couple of months. But apparently, in California, there's this county that has a prison that makes eyewear, so they make the the frames, right? And they, uh, working with the government, told the county. The, in, the independent businesses that they have to now purchase their frames from the prison industry. They can't get them elsewhere. If you're going to be in that county, you're selling glasses, you got to get what? frames from the prison industry. I'm going to find that article before the end of the program is, but that kind of blew my mind as well. Uh, back to you. Sure. Yeah, so that's uh, it's actually it's a managed Medi-Cal plan. It's the, let's see. Let me that one threw me off. Inmates make eyeglass gain clarity in Chowchilla. So it's actually uh, being done at Chowchilla State Prison. Chowchilla. Valley, Valley State Prison. Yeah. 
Right. Oh, yeah, I, makes sense. That makes sense. That. <laughs> so that's what California is doing. They've got uh, 33 prisons, I believe, and there's like 70 factories built right into the prisons. And it's oh, through yeah, the, the Medi-Cal. Right, the Medi-Cal program. I guess that's uh, some form of uh, Medicaid or Medicare out in California. Get out of here. Mm-hmm. Yes. So if you right. use so that, you got to get I the pulled, I class. pulled something up since since she mentioned Calpia. California Prison Industry Authority operates two optical mm-hmm. laboratories within the state of California. PIA provides prescription eyewear to clients of the California Medical Assistance Program, also referred to as the Medi-Cal program. Mm. It also provides uh, prescription safety eyewear to maintenance staff employed by government agencies through California. That's directly from uh, CalPIA's website. <laughs> All right. We have that, to find the article. And they, and they... Go ahead. Go ahead, Shay. I was going to say we have to find the oh, article God. because it was something where it was mandated. And that's what Max wanted to bring up, that there was a mandate that yes. the glasses had to be purchased through uh, prison labor. That's just insane. I, I mean, I, and, and I'll tell you this, is they would, they, so have you ever been able to find the finances? Have you ever uh, been able to find the actual finances? Yeah, there's been so, some research on that. <laughs> Yeah, we've it, looked it, at it, we but of course... We couldn't find Calpia's direct money. We couldn't find, a, like, a, an actual up-to-date budget of how much they make off inmate labor, how much they get from county count federal. Uh, they won't give those numbers. It's not very transparent because then you wow. can actually then break down those numbers. Right, and that's what I was going to say because I've looked, and, of course, they give you the superficial numbers, but they're not going to give you, you know, the itemized numbers to where you can see, you know, what exactly is happening. Because, you know, once you can follow the money, then you can point out the key players. But we know Max? who they are. Oh. We know oh, who those Shea. key players are. No, just saying, go ahead and uh, your mic is all yours, Shay. Sorry. Oh, no, no, no. I was just saying, like, um, we always get these, like, you know, these new reports in from the political, New York Times, all of them telling, like, oh, these are the people, the culprits. But it's far more than that. So um, uh, somebody, when you mentioned before about Vermont, we just had the conversation about involuntary service with a state representative from there, and she was the first openly transgender woman. And she was like, oh, they're doing some BS in Vermont. And, I was, and then you start talking about it, and she's like, even when I ordered business cards, a constituent said, don't get those business cards. Those are made by inmate labor. She's like, she had no idea at how far inmate labor uh, um, was uh, involved, even in her state. And she's like, I'm going to make it my personal, you know, uh, a job to figure out how do we end this the right way. So I definitely want to talk. I literally just left her. So, I mean, it's like it couldn't have been better timing to talk about Vermont. And in addition is, the conversation around, you know, what they can make, what they can't make, and they should be they should be doing this work and that work. Um, it was very, very uh, disappointing because no one's actually having the conversation of how the, 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 the prison works and what people can and can't do. It's just not a conversation that includes what's best for this, how is this helping correction or rehabilitation. There's no justification for it except privatized and state-funded on low-wage workers, which I thought California was moving away from. 
Um, I found that article too. Uh, it was from September of 2020, so just not even a year. And it's in short, it says local health administrators and optometrists are pushing back against a recent change to San, San Luis Obispo and Santa Barbara County's managed Medicare plan, GenCal Health, that strips away all coverage of private prescription eyewear in favor of glasses produced by state prison inmates. Like they are mandating it. <laughs> wow. San Luis Obispo That's and Santa insane. Barbara County. It's, it's slavery. You know, when you tell people that, that you know, now right. you're going to work in a prison for free or for 10 cents, 12 cents an hour to produce something that's being made to sell commercially. It's crazy. Right. For 20 times the amount or sometimes 70, 70% uh, more. What does the union think of these types of exploitations? Because it's certainly uh, competition for jobs on the outside. So have you heard anything from the unions? Are they in support of AC3? So now here's that's an interesting question is because we've been talking a lot about how um, uh, how uh, unions show up in this work. We haven't made it about wages directly um, because then they're able to – swing around these fake budgets that we never really get access to. But um, I've been talking to the union leaders directly saying, hey, this is this involves you. Even on the outside, unions do hire formerly incarcerated loved ones. And so getting them in this fight is not, it's not foreign, but the conversation has been very shallow and not so deep yet, not to their fault or ours. It's just we've been really focusing on the legislation and the amendment component that yes. at this right moment we haven't really involved them because we don't want the discussion to be about labor that will then forget about the amendment and the barbaric language that still exists, right? You, oh, right, you sort right, of try, right. Drive them in a different direction. So, But what mm-hmm. I can say is about as a former organizer for SEIU, you know, unions do stand away. You know, they really do not want exploitation of any workers. So it has to come about. They, To me, it's a pipeline for them, right? Because in mm-hmm. California, there is a shortage of plumbers, there's a shortage of building trades, there's a shortage of electricians. We have a shortage of labor in California. So the, the unions, there's a benefit for them because not only do they have amazing apprenticeship programs that are also sometimes federally funded, they automatically get men who have been doing the work on the inside in some capacity to be able to mm-hmm. join them on the outside and continue that work and have stability, have economic uh, upward mobility, just all the things that we talk about we want for reentry in California. So I, I don't want to say they haven't and they're not in support, but I will say is that when the, the labor component – oh, did I forget something? When the labor component um, uh, discussion happens, I know that they will be a friend of this movement. Well, I'm glad to hear that. Uh, just to let our listeners know, if you're a friend of uh, Shay Franco-Clausen and uh, you want to give her a <laughs> shout-out or ask a question or make a comment – you can call us at 515-605-9814. That's 515-605-9814. And remember to press the number one on your keypad so that we know you do have a question or a comment. You're listening to Abolition Today, abolitiontoday.org with Yusuf and Max. All right, so let's get back on it. Um, since we don't want to push the conversation towards the labor aspects, let's talk about the kids a little bit. Um how does the incarceration system, the juvenile detention system, uh, 
in California, how much does that cost annually to incarcerate one single teenager? Do you know? Wait, say that again. I'm sorry to hear that last part. To incarcerate a teenager in California, what's the annual price? Do you know? Wasn't it like, no, don't quote me. I'm not sure. Don't, don't give me, to, to, don't quote me on that one. <laughs> All right, all right. I, I thought it was like over two hundred thousand dollars, if I was correct, if I'm correct, somewhere around a two hundred thousand dollar mark to incarcerate kids in California. Um, any idea if that is a uh, big industry there as well? Well, I mean, I the sad thing is that we want to incarcerate young people in the in the first place, and 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 it, it we could pay for their education and their housing for two hundred thousand dollars. And for them to to be able to uh, sure. uh, live a nice life for two hundred thousand dollars, get them the services and and the support they need for two hundred thousand dollars. So, I I, right. I I know that we're moving toward removing those industries, but they are. I, okay, I love you. Um, they are a uh, the pipeline to the prison system. So remember, it's a business. It's a business. So those young people that will then go into the prison system, they sort of want to keep in there. If you're saying it's $200,000, I, I thought it was more so along the lines of under 100000 but I, I, like I said, don't quote me on that exact price. Right. Um, right. We know it's, it's up in those uh, yeah. five digits at least. Damn, $200,000 yeah. so, though? Right. So I just yeah. came across an article entitled, this uh, put out by the AP, it's entitled California Moves the Phase Out at State-Run Youth Prisons. And within the article, uh, let me see, it indicated that county officials fear smaller counties could have difficulty providing specialized programs for youth who commit sex crimes, for instance, or have serious mental health needs, the state will ramp up the sending counties $212 million annually to help pay for their new responsibilities, and it says it's about 225000 per youth. Yeah, you, you got to send me that. Please email me that article. First of all, <laughs> have you been into the youth authorities or any of the local juvenile halls? Have you ever visited? Uh, I have, yes. Yeah, but not in California. It seems like for two hundred thousand dollars, we're paying we're paying wages. We're not paying for what they sure. the support well, they're receiving. Yeah, the, the money doesn't wages. go right. The money doesn't go to the youth. <laughs> that's You're paying they, wages. That's yeah, just what job creators. Right, these job, job creators. That's what it is. Because uh, well, if you just gave them a fraction of that, you'd never see them in the prisons. <laughs> you know what I mean? If you gave the poor family a fraction of that money to get their lives together, you'd never see those children. But once they are convicted of a crime, poof, they're worth two hundred twenty-five grand. Two hundred twenty-five thousand dollars. So that's the salary of an officer. That's the salary of uh, civilian staff. That's the salary of. Parole and probation officers. We got a song about it by Chase Shizza, where he breaks down everybody that gets paid, right? <laughs> Calls them out by that's name. Right. Uh-huh. What's that's, that that's all called? salary. It, it has nothing to do with reentry. It has nothing to do with serving juveniles. It has nothing to do with making sure that we give them all the mental health, our medical, yeah. our family support counseling. That seems like $200,000 is wages. <laughs> when we had our discussion with the Queen mother of Benin, uh, we were talking about how the prison industry, the model in America is prison as an economic development program. So they use it literally to do that. They create jobs, they have to make the materials, they have to build the buildings, they have to maintain blah, 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 on and on and on. And oftentimes you find those prisons in uh, areas where there's very little people 
that reflect the same color prisoners you have there. Sure. You know, which sure. leads to things like gerrymandering and so on. Oh, well, uh, where yeah. Are... I mean, because, like, remember, we we just had the fight about the census. You know, they were, for, for, for all throughout history, the prisons would count the prisoners a part of that county to get more funding in that region, which we stop now. Like, we had to... <laughs> Even in the, even in the counties, even in, in in the local county prisons, and even juvenile hall, they were able to count them on the census to create more revenue for that area to support you know this this industry. And yes. it's, I mean, that's not happening anymore. At least at least here in California, but it's it's a fight that we just began, and we're going to continue to fight. And I hope other other states also take on that same fight, because the resources are are not really going to benefit them. You know, Look how far we, prisons are away from your community and the, mm. the, the financial impact it is on the family, from the phone calls to the money you put on their commissaries to the emails that you send through JPay, mm-hmm. from them being you have to get a car. Mm-hmm. Some people have to rent a car. Then you've got to get your kids. You've got to take the day off. There's, there's such a financial burden in this so-called rehabilitation. That has been, I mean, to me, it's just an extension of another form of slavery on the family as well. Right, it's exploitative. It exploits everybody that's even connected somehow to the person that they put into the cage. Um, you know, Jamelia has told us a number of times how she had to send nearly five hundred dollars just to get uh, Samuel two hundred and fifty, uh, so that he can get his stuff from the commissary. Oh yeah, and, they take a fee. They right. They take a cut. And uh, the phone. They, they, they definitely everything. take a cut. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and even in the materials that the prisoners, the inmates have to use, uh, often uh, jacked up way higher than they are than even on the outside. So you might get some Raymond noodles for like a dollar a pack where they're 25 cents outside. You know what I mean? Or you right. find products that are only made in prisons, like potato chips, only made in prisons. And they also have exclusive contracts with clothing companies. Like what's the one that they have to wear the shoes now? Uh, it's not Nike. It's some other company, Reeboks. Reeboks. <laughs> so they got contracts at Reeboks for prisoners that have to wear Reeboks. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. It's it's really sad. It's very sad. But I'm trying to remember, you just said something that really made me made me just reflect on what Jamila was talking about. About when it how, comes much to how much you have to pay. Yeah. So I had two brothers in prison that I just got out. And I spent about $600 a month just to keep them maintained because right. we don't even talk about the food that they provide them, the, the slop that has no nutritional value in it. So we have right. to pay for the extra food that's marked up so high. And then when it comes to JK, if you do send somebody money and they owe, they owe restitution, they take it right out of the money you put in there. So now, in addition, we have to then pay the restitution as a fee in order to communicate with them or to give them any. That's right. And this is all the circle of uh, resources that swirls around that prison, sucking it in uh, and, and bleeding those who have the least to give dry. I remember there was a study not too long ago that said that the average amount of money that people spend on an incarcerated family member is equal to their rent usually. And sometimes they don't pay their bills because they have to try to support right. the person who is uh, currently incarcerated, putting their family in more hardships, meaning that now, you know, you're not only making the person you accuse of guilty as suffering, but you're making the family suffer by the fault. Yeah. And it's all exploitative and for profit. Well, I've heard numbers that go up towards about 250 
billion dollars a year that's generated in the United States through the industries and the prison uh, contracts. But they said they don't add the money spent by friends and family. If you spent, if you add that money in there, it would be nearly half a trillion dollars a year annually just for this prison industry in the United States. Sounds about right, but let's be real. I, none of us should be surprised by those figures, by those numbers, considering that these systems were designed after Juneteenth to enslave us and to strip us away from any progress. And, and, and these systems have, are still in place in every facet of our, in our, our lives. But going back to ACA 3, um, with, uh, the, the California Abolition Act, it's very important for people to know that are listening that this is how we start passing this through our state legislature and getting this on the ballot is the first step to ending it and coming up with what's a more feasible plan and how do we support, if we talk about rehabilitation, how do we make our Department of Corrections more rehabilitative? That's one piece. But what most people that are listening don't understand, majority of the people in our prison systems are there for low-level crimes. And many of their offenses are just violation from a previous offense, not a new crime. And mm-hmm. just in the United States, there's 663,000 people that are in, still incarcerated over marijuana charges, while some mm-hmm. of the top marijuana organizations are owned by white folks. So when you think about the system and you think about making this change, you have to think about all the intersectionalities of what's happening and all the people like, that are benefiting off of this. Like poverty. We, we all know that oh, you can't really yeah. deal with the prison industry yeah. without dealing with the poverty issue because if right. you send them right and back that's been poverty, criminalized. Yeah, and it's been oh, criminalized. Sure. So, yeah. you know, in California, it's got huge homeless populations, and people don't wake up one day and go, you know what I'm going to do today? I'm going to be homeless. That's not how it works. It's a right, downward spiral, right, right, right. spiral from <laughs> issues, including employment and stuff like that, mental health. Uh, but, you, you know, <laughs> We know that in many of these issues, the poverty is maintained, uh, just like they were redlining us, so that we could have uh, oh, for sure. continually giving them bodies to put into the system and generate those resources. Right. And a lot of our youth are ignorant of that. They don't understand that they're like mice in a maze being led along by cheese through social media, music, and fake news and everything. And they're, they're walking right into these traps. Well, this is what I will say is as active and and smart as this next generation is, you have to think about how history hasn't really been given to them. They have this watered-down version of history in their public schools and even in our private institutions. Many of us don't learn about true history unless we're taking a a course in college about African-American studies or ethnic studies. So our history shows these young people that spending months in a class about fake gods is more important than talking about the real violence and terrorism of, of slavery. So in, in their defense, they don't have the history. But two, they are very smart, and they do know how to research better than some of us. And they know every app, and they know how to communicate, become influencers and all that. They're just a, they're the one-touch generation where they get everything handed to them, and everything is a one-touch. So just not a custom where you and I – we had to go to the public library. Remember going to get the index card, uh-huh. going to find what, mm-hmm. what aisle it's on. Uh-huh. We just come from a more manual generation where we had to do it ourselves. 
So I think it's for us is to, like, the, uh, uh, what we're going to start doing in two weeks on Friday, every Friday we're going to do an activist training, and we're going to work with Edify, which is an organization out of Chicago and L.A. that makes uh, relationships with uh, um, athletes, professional athletes, colleges, and teaches them how to be activists with their social medias and, and, and whatever sport they play in their community as well as bringing so many young people from all these different coalitions together. Because, yes, they're not educated, but we have, to, we have to step in at some point if we want them to follow the movement, continue the movement, and keep this work going long and strong. Shay, we've got about 10 minutes left in the hour, uh, and I would like to give you an opportunity to just tell us anything you think our audience needs to know. Uh, and it's a well-educated audience. You know, We've been talking about this issue of slavery and human trafficking through the 13th Amendment. Uh, since we started, right. so they they they, they could talk to them very clearly. What would you like them to know, and how can they help uh, with ACA three in California? Thank you, thank you. So, um, these are these are passion projects for me. I love Jamila and Samuel. I'm formerly I was uh, trafficked myself as a youth in foster care, um, and I I think people need to see the the the, the human impact behind it and understand how this system has been designed. And while we're advocating for just, just one, one piece of this giant puzzle, that they look to their state legislator. All you California listeners, wherever you live in California, if you go to our, the CaliforniaAbolitionAct.com, you can actually go on there and find how to email your legislator, how to call your city council member, how to even email the press to let them know that you stand against slavery in California and that you want to end the exception. That is one way they can get involved or join us on one of these Fridays. The dates will be on the calendar next week to give you opportunity to come ask more different questions. If you belong to a faith group, if you belong to a, a knitting group, if you're a parent, you have children, like it doesn't matter. Every single person that's listening and, and if you're in California, you're a voter. And you have access to the person that represents you. And if this means a lot to you, making a phone call, sending a letter is a small step in helping us accomplish this goal. We only need 62 votes to pass it through the state assembly. And we have those votes. We have those votes. We, but we need all of you to stand with us and tell your legislator that you want them to end the exception and you expect for them to stand with us and pass this from January to the California state assembly. That's this step right now. After it passes through the state assembly, it then goes on, we'll go through the same process, public safety, appropriations to the Senate before it hits the Senate floor. And then after that, it will be moved in to a ballot initiative, the Attorney General, they'll give us a ballot summary, and then we're ready, set, go. Then it will be on the ballot next year in November. I need your help. We need your help if you want to end this. You're all voters. You have a minute. Just please email your legislator. They're the ones that are going to be making the decision. Do you need volunteers as well with the uh, absolutely. California Absolutely. Oh, no, absolutely. I do, sorry. I'm in the airport, so I, I just apologize. <laughs> Mike, um, will all of, I don't know if you know, Southwest has canceled so many flights, so my flight has been changed right. five times. Oh. No, no, they just canceled it. I had a 7 o'clock. Now it's not leaving until 11. So yeah, <laughs> it's they, it was about 20,000 flights or something that they uh, had to get rid of. Some outrageous well, number what? of Southwest Airlines. They don't have enough pilots. They don't have enough people working. That's the problem. There's a shortage of workers. I don't know how. 
But, well, I mean, well, 268,000 people have left California, just so you know, um, and, uh, this, this post-COVID. So people are leaving California. But, anyways, yes, we need volunteers. We need people that are willing to make the phone calls. Um, and, and every single community in California, there are so many different organizations that people belong to. If you're willing to come learn and be trained, we train the trainer. We train you how to show up in your community and advocate. We give you the toolkit, how you send a letter, how you send out on social media, how do you contact the press. We have all those different things for you if you're interested in, in volunteering to do something like that. And after in two weeks, we're going to start doing any fundraising. You know, it's not easy to host and run these types of legislative and political campaigns. And this has all been grassroots. It's been people like myself, Jamila, you, Max, and so many other people in the California Coalition. We're going to need people that are ambassadors to help us raise the money so we can keep this fight going. So that we're able to, this is a state initiative. California is a very big state. There's a lot of people. And in order for us to pass it, we're going to reach every single community. And the financial support, I don't care if it's $5, it could be $10. And actually, you can donate on our website right now if you feel so, so kind enough in your heart to do. But, yeah, we need people to call legislators, uh, be ambassadors in their communities, connect us to organizations. And if they feel so great they want to host a fundraiser with us, we, we're willing to do that, to get us in front of different people, to have the real honest conversation about involuntary servitude. That's right. Yeah, so go to enslaveryincalifornia.org. Uh, sign up there. Uh, show your support. Um, volunteer, and uh, if you have some resources that you can expend, please do so. Uh, this is going to cost a lot of money to get this done. Look what they spent just trying to prevent this recall, and this is more important than some governor. We're talking about ending involuntary servitude and slavery in California for the first time. Let's do it, people. Uh, I'm, a, I'm so happy that we got a chance to talk with you, Shay. Uh, I appreciate you. Right. Thanks so much for joining us here today. Uh, I'm sure everybody else uh, agrees with me who's listening. Uh, and uh, we look forward to working with you in the future. Hey, I, I, I definitely appreciate you guys having me on today. And please, once again, check out our website, find ways you can get involved. And thank you all so much. Have a great evening. Peace, Peace And travel safely. Yes, indeed. Thank you. Bye. All right. Well, you just heard Shay Franco Clausen, and uh, we were talking about California's ACA3 as well as other issues in California. It's a pretty deep conversation. It's so important right now. Like, I've been saying this, and I'm going to keep saying it, that this generation has a chance that many other generations never had, the chance to be great, to do something great. Slavery is legal. Let's end it. Isn't that great? <laughs> I mean, we, you would go down in the history books, the generation that finally ended slavery in America. Right. It's not symbolic. Right. It's very real. And you can't just walk away from that. And you have to prioritize. Uh, how important is slavery, genocide, and human trafficking to you? you You're absolutely right. I mean, there's what could be greater? I can't think of anything greater than ending slavery and involuntary servitude in California and in the country within itself. You know, the rest of the world is caught on. They know, you know, how how the magnitude of human trafficking, slavery, involuntary servitude, forced labor, sweatshops. We hear this stuff talked about all over the world, but when it comes to the United States, it's just silent and, you know, those in power in the United States even have the audacity 
you know, to speak out against other countries who do things and yep. refuse to trade with them, but yet it's happening right here on a large scale. I mean, as we discussed this evening, even in talking about the forced purchase of eyewear from the prisoners, from the prison, uh, you know, from those in prison who are making the eyewear. Right, exactly. And, you know, the worst uh, of this all is when it's done to children. And that's a story I really want to dig into tonight. Um, maybe our next guest yeah. will be able to uh, speak on that. And, by the way, Brother uh, Jihad, if you're online, I don't know your number, so please press the number one on your keypad so that we can see you in our lineup. All right, I see you right there. Thank you very much. All right, so we're going to play our music clip, and when we come back on the other side, we'll be coming back with Brother Jihad Abdul Moment. Uh, we're going to listen to a Black News Channel clip uh, regarding the Tennessee juvenile judge, Donna Scott Davenport, and what she's doing to children in Tennessee. And as I said, it's a very deep story. I've been doing some research, and it's, it's, it's some things you need to know. It's also going to be followed by a brand new song from Javier Mighty called Protests featuring Yizzy. Uh, you know, we love Javier Mighty up in here. All right, you're mm-hmm. listening to Abolition Today with Max Parkes and Yusuf Hassan, abolitiontoday.org. We'll be right back after this. Abolition. But we begin this hour with an alarming new report based on a joint investigation by ProPublica and Nashville Public Radio. A decades-long system and practice of arresting and jailing mostly black children in Rutherford, Tennessee. At the head, the mother of the county, as juvenile court judge Donna Scott Davenport sometimes called herself. That's according to this report. Now the judge calling her work, quote, God's mission, while while performing so-called God's mission as the head of the county's juvenile justice system, allegedly directing police to arrest children at an alarming rate. It was literally a school-to-jail pipeline, according to this article. Among cases referred to the juvenile court, the statewide average for how often children are locked up was just 5%, but in Rutherford County, it was 48%. I got the over the shoulder look pat down. I'm me that the boy want track down. Both squad pulled up so they ran down. Lock doors so the door get rammed down. They inside so my heart just sank down. Bright ass lights when they stand down. Warn my boy so I flag down. Look away from it, it's to me dash up. I got the over the shoulder look pat down. I'm me that the boy want track down. Both squad pulled up so they ran down. Lock doors so the door get rammed down. When we see them, my heart just sank down. It seems that the boy want crack down. What you fuck, bro? Man down. Y'all need to broaden your scope Picture you got darker skin and broaden your nose I be sick when I be thinking about the trauma we know This shit is scripted, watch the drama unfold You hear them sirens, that's the sound of the law They say be silent with their hands on your jaw They say you violent but they act like they God They want submission They'll let your ass get ravaged by the dogs Cause there's a system And my black ass just don't fit it Oh, I get it She takes a race game And this game is hopeless From the 60s, they displaced the Scotians Back then, they made slave patrol and night watches They became the roaches Immigrants at this gate is open Did the home island, this came the closest So why walk with this strange emotion In my head, cause this braid is broken chain And I don't feel safe in a trick show pill Wipe on a strip like a trick course meal And I ain't tryna get caught up but I would never play if I don't need no deal I never straddle the devil no. If it's hot, I don't handle the kettle no. They might have you or shoot you, whatever, 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 whatever. 
Wipe on the right so me go left Cause if them not see me then it's no stress Weight is on my back, I'm getting no rest Better see the man them at the protest They say I'm a waste but I'm focused Blizzard in the way, it's the coldest year When you see us play like you don't notice I just pray to why them never roll up I got the over the shoulder look back down I'm me that the boy want track down No squad pulled up so they ran down Lock doors so the door get run down Man sign so my heart just sank down Bright ass lights when they stand down Warn my boy so I flag down Look away but my hips to me dash up I got the over the shoulder look back down I'm me that the boy want track down No squad pulled up so they ran down Lock doors so the door get run down When we see them my heart just sank down It seems that the boy want crack down What the fuck bro?
Sure, Jihad Abdul Mumit, who is the national chairperson for the Jericho Movement. He sits on the board of the Abolitionist Law Center. He was a former domestic political prisoner who served 23 years of his life in prison for his involvement in the Black Liberation Movement. Uh, Without further ado, you know, we welcome you to the show, Brother Jihad Abdul Mumit. Assalamu alaikum, brother. Welcome to the show. Wa alaikum assalam, my brothers. How are y'all? Uh, peace, brother. Uh, man, yeah, that that track though, right, brother Jihad? <laughs> like, think that in this day and age that this is still going on with babies, and they're saying it's so nonchalant. Like eight, nine years old? Oh yeah, we got plenty of them little black boys. We just throw them in. They don't even know what kind of ice cream they like yet, and you putting them in jails, you know? But anyway, uh, <laughs> any commentary on that, brother? Well, I think it goes into how our oppression has been in the eyes of the mainstream society and maybe even many parts of the world has been so normalized. It's just that. It's uh, it's, it's, it's okay. And every once in a while, something so um, uh, egregious happens, George Floyd, John Taylor, then it just slightly perks everybody's emotions for a minute. But the overall Mm -hmm. context of oppression for over 400 years has been normalized to the point that even when when we charge genocide, which is the killing of people in whole or part, then normally we think of something that has a definitive beginning and a definitive end. You know, Bosnia-Herzegovina, Rwanda, what happened to the Jews under Hitler, Adolf Hitler. You can even quantify pretty much how many people were killed. Uh, You're still tracking down war criminals. But when it comes to uh, uh, people in this country of African descent, uh, the slaves, um, and the legacy that still exists in the structures and the systems that is dragged on, not for any definitive period of time that we can quantify and put in the page, but it continues to go on now to the point that, unfortunately, like I said, much of it's become normalized and, 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 and fused into our very fabric of our lives, our psyche. And manifests itself in the trauma in our own communities, the glass ceilings, the marginalization, the exploitation, the oppression, the racism in the judicial system, mass incarceration, and of course political prisons. Those that stood up to try to fight the system, and, and, and on and on and on. The abuse of women, the sterilization of our people, um, our women physically, our minds, everything that's going on today. The violence, the shootings of each other in our own communities, the disrespect. They're calling out women B-words and having people of other races dance to the music. Um, we are, we've been gutted out, as I say. They, the system has gutted us, our humanity, our manhood, our sisterhood. They've gutted us pretty doggone good, you know. And like George Jackson said in Blood in My Eye, you know, fascism, the highest form, one of the highest forms of fascism is when you can govern yourself. You don't need, which they still have, you know, the police apparatus uh, and the oppressive laws, but pretty much for our own ignorance, we keep ourselves in check, relegated to, to the post of ignorance. And and there you have it. So that's not a bright commentary. But um, And when we talk about these problems, I might add, you know, at the same time, I'm redeemed, you know, to to acknowledge, you know, all of the wonderful programs the sister before spoke about. Brother Dennis, I wrote his name down in, in New Jersey, all the programs, yes, that brothers and sisters are, in fact, doing to challenge and combat this ignorance and break the cycle of this oppression. 
a lot of times when we talk about it, we get fixated on such a point that we don't realize that there are, in fact, many, many struggles locally and statewide and maybe federally, I don't know, uh, when I say federally, across, across state lines that are happening. So in the same breath, I salute those sisters and brothers that are holding it down on those points. Amen to that, man. You got me all in my feelings with what you were saying about the normalization, you know, and not because, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not familiar with the horrors, but because I accept that that's true. That's exactly what's happened. We've gone, become used to this type of oppression. Like, it's okay. Uh, you know what I mean? And even worse than that, we often blame ourselves. Like, if you just pull up your pants, kids, if you just cut off your dreads, if you stop swearing, if you don't smoke reefers, Nothing will ever happen to you. And that is so far from the truth. There's no protection for anybody, anywhere. You know, at any moment, they can get any one of us. And often it's simply because of the color of our skin. And this is the culmination of a war that was escalated uh, because of brothers like you. It was the response to brothers like you who in the Black Liberation Movement that got so close to getting us to freedom and shutting this shit down that Nixon came out and declared war in the form of the war on drugs. And, and we're still mm-hmm. practicing that same genocide right now, uh, which was brought into place by a failed, disgraced criminal who resigned. Uh, yeah, so that's why I get money. Because it's true, man. I just wish our, our people died for lack of knowledge, <laughs> right? Uh, I'm yeah, sure you want to speak on that. Speaking yeah. of knowledge, tell us a little bit about the Jericho movement. You're the chairman of that. Uh, what is that all about, and uh, how did it come to be? Yeah, well, thank you, brother, for the question. Um, well, Jericho started in 1998. I was still in prison, and um, I was uh, incarcerated, you know, um, as a Black Panther in the Black Liberation Army, had uh, multiple bank expropriations, and got a 42-year sentence just for the record. Did about 22 years on them things. Huh. And uh, came home in 2000, but Jericho was starting in 1998 before I came home from prison. Matter of fact, I was one of the ones on the posters of support, you know, <laughs> back then. But um, it was started by Bubba Herman Ferguson and Safiya and Safiya Bukhari. And, um, and uh, recently released uh, freedom fighter Jalil Mufakim, living up in Rochester, New York now. But it was started as an organization to bring other organizations together um, to to champion the cases of political prisons, to uplift their names, to, you know, uplift their legacies, uh, and then to give actual viable support to them. And when we say support, we mean not only champion their cases legally slash politically by working with their defense committees, those that have them, you know, writing letters to pro boards, all doing all that revolutionary administration type of work is what I call it. You know, but also tending to their personal needs, um, financing money into the commissary, um, um, financing uh, family visitations, visiting them themselves. Uh, if they have medical issues, you know, uh, establishing third-party medical intervention for them, and just really bringing the attention, educating people in communities across the United States to to recognize the fact that any legitimate struggle calling for you know, human rights struggle for Black liberation or any issue like that, then um, it cannot really move forward with any authenticity without acknowledging the freedom fighters that went before. And it just speaks to, uh, when that does happen, it speaks to how superficial and unread we are and how unready we are to really face the foe. And I'm telling you that right now. I had a, 
a guy come to me, a young activist. I, by the way, I'm in Richmond, Virginia. I live in Richmond. I'm from New Jersey, so that's where I can resonate with, uh, with what's happening Good in New Jersey. Good Who said that? <laughs> Yeah, yeah playing field. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Now I'm, I'm I'm looking through your Facebook profile and I realize I know you. So <laughs> yeah, okay, there you go. Um, but um, and I said I live in Richmond, so don't nobody make any smart remarks. Okay, I'm not trying to hear that. <laughs> but um, I guess I'm just saying that uh, I'm breaking my channel thought for just a little bit, but just getting getting back to it that um. Getting so an activist came to me in one of the uh, Black Lives Matter protests in the wake of the, the brutal assassination of George Floyd uh, televised around the world, and he was so excited in what he was doing. He knows me, or think he does anyway, and he had said, "Man, did y'all ever? Now this is a pro. Did y'all ever do any of this? You know, in, with the police when you was in the Panthers? Now." Okay, so what kind of question is that now? You know, that's what he's asking me, and that reflects the face of many activists. Um, and just no criticism, because I actually applaud all the sisters and brothers, everybody that was in them streets, so powerful, and resonated so strong, and woke up so many people that were dead asleep in their brain. You know, but at the same time, a lot of the superficiality, the, the lack of awareness and understanding about history, if you don't know what we did in the Black Panther Party, we were number one on the FBI's uh, um, most wanted list in terms of organizations, then you don't know what's coming through the door next to get you behind and rip it right off the street. And, and you're right. not going to be ready to stand up to two days or two weeks in prison without crying the blues what they did to me because they sprayed some pepper spray in your face. You don't realize who you're dealing with, you know. So, and that's the difference when we characterize ourselves as activists. And once again, it's no slight. This of this revolutionaries, and so uh, there is a big difference. We may be a long time getting back to revolutionaries in front, but we are where we are in 2000, October 17, 2021 today. So we're just taking it on the chin, but you really. Sometimes it's hard talk to make us understand the reality of what we're dealing with. You know, as y'all was talking early in the last segment, the sister was saying how you used to have to go to a library and get an index card to find something. <laughs> and, uh, right. And now, because of the advent of the smartphone and what have you, it does make research easier, communication easier, but it hasn't really helped us in the sense that, you know, the movement is disabled, dilapidated, and, and almost non-existent as it was when there was no cell phone and you had strong structural organizations and there's reason for that. I don't necessarily get off into the call about that, but, um, but what, one thing that it does do is it causes us not to investigate. What we read is a blurb on our cell phone when we ask it a question and that may be the extent of your research. You got an answer without any real understanding um, to what's really going on. So just a heads up for young brothers and sisters and maybe older brothers and sisters too that um, are involving themselves in different movements, it does require for those that's in leadership positions, it is a responsibility to you to investigate, understand, study, research, and keep and keep doing it. That process never never ends. As our Sheikh Al Hajj Al Shabazz said, he's just a student of history. Here he is, a leader that we all look toward. Right now, you know, um, uh, decades after his assassination, and he's saying before his death that he's a student. He was a student, and all of us have to take that that notion. Even even the leaders of us 
to, to continue the study and strategize and, and so forth and so on. But Jericho does all those things. Um, I've been the chairman for about a decade or so now. Um, it has chapters all across the United States, from Portland to L.A. to Oakland to uh, New York to Boston um, and other places around the country. And I'm right here in Virginia, Richmond, Virginia, also where I'm in. And that's what we do. We focus on getting people out of prison, those political prisons. Now, we also recognize that because of the racist nature of the system that you can say in the sense that, in a very general sense, that all incarcerations are political. I mean, you know that we are victims of colonialism still to this day and the ravages of colonialism and, and, and the, um, the throw-up of capitalist system and we are the dregs of society and we do what we do out of ignorance and, and lack of resources and options that we have before us in our communities and then we do something, a crime against each other. Even that, in a sense, is, is, uh, is political because our situation is political. Oppression is political. It doesn't mean that another man who shot another or disrespected our sisters is a political person. Don't get it twisted. But the, uh, the incarceration, the circumstance that that person may not even understand themselves <laughs> is uh, the situation. But when we talk about political prisons, we're talking about uh, sisters and brothers that based upon their belief and understanding and full determination to fight against oppression and, and, and uh, exploitation of our people and to establish a new type of society that we can all benefit and live from. Somebody that's very intentional, regardless if we were framed and set up based upon our, our, what, the work that we was doing in the community or if we actually picked up a weapon and fought against the state, which, by the way, we are proud of. That part has been so criminalized, it's very difficult 50 years later for somebody to say, that they support freedom fighters when you ask the question, what did they do? Oh, he, he charged with killing a police officer. You say, oh, my God. But you're so uh, removed from the context of the Black Liberation Movement back in that day. And my response to that has always been as an example, when you open up a history book and see the Reverend, uh-huh. the Reverend, Nat Turner, uh-huh. do you see a criminal or do you see a revolutionary? And however you answer that question, is how you think about those freedom fighters that are in prison today. You know, mm. you cannot conceive of fighting for our freedom. How that how even it's even scary to entertain the thought because our comfort and, and lackadaisical attitude is benefiting from just enjoying the benefits of a high tech advanced society as the United States, and realizing that it was built on the back of slaves. You and I, even us listening, talking to each other right now, benefit uh, from it. But we realize the fact that. The, 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 the 100% start that this country has is on the back of slaves and indigenous people to the point of our extermination in whole or in part, as genocide is, and, uh, and, and also the exploitation through imperialism around the world, the extrapolation of wealth from other countries, and we enjoy that. Running water, flushing toilets, clothes, cars, automobiles, everything is really groovy here. And when and check just an, I'll shut up in a minute. Kick me if you if you need to shut up for another question. But you know because of that, we we cannot separate ourselves, our psyche necessarily from these benefits because this is twenty four seven everyday life that we live, even in the ghettos, uh, for the most part. That you know we have TVs, flat screens, cars, rims, all these type of things to make you forget about the reality of your oppression. Party for the weekend, as the OJ says. And, and you have a, a mass of people that's, that's not really focused on our freedom. We're really just like um, 
uh, Harriet Tubman said, you know, I freed 300 slaves, but I could have freed 1,000 more if they only knew that they were slaves. You don't even realize it. <laughs> You're enjoying um, I, I their life. Well, I was just going to say that kind of ties into one of the questions I want to ask. Uh, uh, part of your bio states that you work as a senior case manager at Health Brigade, servicing the needs of HIV-positive individuals. You also have a, a master's in business and a minor in public health. And, you know, the conversation keeps leading back to what's leading to my question when you talk about uh, people being in a condition and they're sort of like placent with the condition, what are, uh, in your opinion, what are some of the mental health conditions or mental health areas that cause them to fall into complacency rather or, and not want to be associated with, say, the Black Liberation Movement or the Black Panthers or Freedom Fighters or those that are, you know, standing up for justice and equality? Right. Well, when you talk about, there's many factors, but if you just want to isolate and just discuss, which is, is profound enough, about mental health issues, um, our diagnosis would be post-slavery um, traumatic syndrome, post-slavery you know, sure. syndrome. And um, what that means is that, as um, it was pointed out, I don't know who's, who really coined it, the really Lynch theory. That was uh, Dr. Joy, Dr. Joy DeGray. There you go. There you go. And so that there, beginning with that type of um, mental um, attack on our thinking, you know, to view, you know, to be able to um, want to emulate the slave master and, and, and hating ourselves. Like the question is, who taught you to hate yourself? Your skin mm-hmm. color, your hair, you trying to look white, you're straightening, all this type of stuff. We almost came out of it in the 60s with our proud, pride afros and Afrocentric things, it was commercialized, and then it was commercialized on the way out the picture again, and now we're right back to straighten our hairs and trying to look white and act white. And society is, is, is homogenized now, too, so there's a natural occurrence of things. It's intentional uh, by corporations and by designs of some insidious jokers that we don't even know about that's really looking down on this and plotting and planning in a, in a, in a more conspiratorial sense. But it's also the natural um, uh, mixing of races and culture that's going to play out. And here we are um, in a subset in a superculture that has its own mores and values that are, are counter to our African values, our religions, our beliefs, and our mores that we came here with. And now we are basically based as material things and whatever. But anyway, I think the diagnosis would be the effects of slavery, hating each other, uh, lack of self-esteem that goes into schizophrenia um, and bipolar and depression and anxiety and, and despair that, you know, and be- despair and anxiety and depression that's based upon uh, looking out of a lens that's very dim and no options, uh, along with how it has mentally in- caused chemical imbalances in our mind that are real. It's not just, you know, put you in a good environment. You, know, you might actually need some medicine to get out of some of the stupor that you're in. As a case manager, when I was incarcerated, I didn't know what I'm telling you now to the detail that I'm telling you. We see a, a brother man acting out on the chair and doing stupid things. Then um, we just say that crazy MF, you know, joker, stupid, you know, like uh-huh. that, dismiss him or put us or put us behind in check. But um, um, 
now that I work at a health clinic and I go through the Zillion seminars and I went to school uh, uh, for this to get my master's, I realized that these are real chemical imbalances in our mind. These are real issues. I know Franz Fanon in one of his books said that, you know, the best treatment for somebody with mental illness is talking about um, poor people is to involve them in a revolutionary struggle. Well, that that is true to a certain extent, but there are real, real mental things going on now. There's real mental problems going on now. I mean, they're real. I mean, beyond sometimes the therapist, you, it, it's just like um, with uh, alcoholism until you get to the point where you just can't cold turkey because you might die. You know, you have to be actually receive treatment to break it down. If you, you know, alcoholism is different. That addiction is different than heroin. You can uh, cold turkey somebody else for heroin. They're not going to die. They're going to go through a heck of a two weeks, I can tell you that. And it might haunt them for a long time thereafter. But if somebody is really strung out on alcohol, you stop that, then uh, you don't give them a drink, then they actually may die. So it's not just talking to somebody, putting somebody on the couch and involving them in a community program. It may take some more professional, which is out of my pay grade, I guess, you know. But I do know from a case manager's point of view that many of my clients, you know, have some serious mental things going on with them. And um, I am a case manager, just to explain real briefly, at a, a wonderful uh, grassroots organization uh, called Help Brigade, formerly known as the Family Clinic in Richmond, Virginia. We have a hell of a director, Karen Legato, and a hell of a staff. Um, and we we um, service those that do not have insurance. And in spite of um, Obamacare, they call it what's left of it, there's still a lot of people that don't have insurance. And pretty soon, I guess, we will be taking Medicaid. But my job is actually going into the prisons and jails after doing 23 years, if you can believe that, you know, uh, to teach classes on hepatitis and HIV, to do HIV testing. The case management part comes out where um, you come home, I can get you uh, hooked up with a doctor, medication, all HIV meds are free, all HIV meds are free, meaning you can be down and out and experiencing homelessness or you can be on the, on the level of Magic Johnson, but you can still get your medication free. Now, whether or not you'll get it because so many obstacles, social, political, and, and, and textual obstacles are in your way from doing it, but the medication cost price tag is free. And, um, and I make sure that people get their medication. I can pay your rent. You know, I can get your food and stuff. So it's a very busy job. Um, and I realized through doing the job that I'm really putting a Band-Aid on it because that whole reentry piece, that y'all talked about briefly in the last segment, though. Sure. It's, it's really stymied by the structural barriers. You can't live in a certain place. You can't live in the hood because you're a felon, and they don't want you to bring your criminal behind back there doing any more criminal activity, so they screen you out there. You can't live in a quote-unquote well-to-do neighborhood because of your criminal conviction. We sure don't want you up in here. And it really leaves a person scrambling. They end up getting a room. That's, that's has an exploitative price of $800 or something, you know, I mean, a one room and you share it with other people just like you was in the dormitory back in the, in the jail or prison. And uh, the other thing is jobs, you know, uh, Virginia is banned the box, meaning they can't ask you, you know, if you have a criminal conviction on, on the face of the interview. But as you get into an interview, it surely will come up. And you and so those structural things, so regardless if you got your cosmetology degree or your barbershop license or whatever, you still have a problem actually getting the job. And it's then, a matter you know, of, 
disenfranchisement, yeah. mass disenfranchisement. Yeah. In the past decade, there's been like 23 yeah. million bodies that have come out of the prison system, and many of them cycled right back into it, like reusable resources. Mm-hmm. With recidivism rates that are just astronomical, like it's like you don't want to fix it, and they don't. I mean, they want you to come back. The trap is set. You come back, you're just still another bad, you know. And it's shameful. I want to make a couple comments, and I got an important question I got to ask you before I next segment. Um, one is, you know, it's confusing with the criminal justice system, uh, especially with us charging things like slavery and genocide, because uh, there's it serves multiple purposes. First of all, there are people who commit real crimes, right? And we do want some kind of justice system to be set up. But at the same time, we also believe the lies of don't do the crime if you can't do the time. And we forget about the most uh, people who are most uh, impacted by this, those who are political prisoners and the wrongfully convicted. And we're talk- not talking about a few people. We're talking about like wrong- wrongfully convicted alone, we know is at least 120,000. It's more likely a quarter of a million uh, people that are wrongfully convicted, and everybody seems to know it, and they're not out. And then political prisoners, people who, for their beliefs, as you described earlier, are being incarcerated, like Mumia, for as an example. You know, uh, we're not saying, uh, and it affects those people and their families differently. I'm sure that the the Dylan family doesn't feel the same way as Mumia families feels about the circumstances that they find their loved right. ones in. And that causes a lot of confusion. Any commentary on that? And then I'll ask my question. Okay. Yeah. Very complicated when we talk about prison abolition. Uh, number one, um, that, yes, there is a distinction between um, uh, political prisons, as I stated in the beginning, and those that actually commit uh, street crimes or crimes against their community and their own people or any people for that matter, not just black people, but um, for any people and do it for uh, those type of reasons. And, um, and, but you're faced with the same judicial system. So obviously, maybe not so obviously that the judicial system will respond to a Robin Hood or a political uh, revolutionary slash activist than it would somebody that's just, you know, shot somebody and another black person and they'll give you a much lesser sentence well, or if they give you the same sentence, you'll make parole, uh, get out earlier, or your living conditions in prison will be different. As we have Sundiata Coley and, and, and 84 years old and 50 years in incarceration, that's their homeboy right there from Jersey, you know, Sada Shakur's last partner. He's been eligible for parole many times already. He goes up and gets denied every time, which is, you know, he's constantly being resentenced, which is against the law. Nothing's been done, even with us banging on the walls and, and talking about it the best we can. We just have to continue that struggle and hope that our brother brother and brothers in that situation and sisters in that situation remain strong like that. But um, I think that um, we have – this is the point I'm making to cut to the chase. I know you have another question. And two, we really have developed within our own communities an infrastructure to kind of address those things ourselves and uh, before it happens and maybe even after it happens um, that, you know, it's a, it's a multi-pronged strategy to have our own um, education centers, you know, or, or if we're going to break down the, the juvenile detention centers to have, you know, smaller settings without bars with counselors and trained sisters and brothers, or peers 
in those centers if they have to be in, contained and separated from the rest of our community because they present a harm because of mental illness or just cold, flat-out, blatant ignorance uh, and aggression, you know, that we recognize that we're not there just to let everybody out of prison. Because I know some jokers you don't, don't want to let out of prison. I can <laughs> tell you that right no, really, seriously. For sure, for sure. Yeah, yeah, I, I know that, you know. And um, you don't want to, so when you talk about prison abolition, it has to go along with the process of developing infrastructure in our own community. A lot of the protests that we've been having over the years doesn't really re- reflect back, at least the, the national narrative. I know, like I said, there's many sisters and brothers doing wonderful things in our community, but the national narrative doesn't reflect back into building our own community. It's talking about protesting policy, which to me, without that development and that infrastructure building in your own community, it amounts to you asking the slave master to treat us better. You're asking the slave master to tell the overseer not to kill us. You're asking the slave master to tell one of his peons to change this and do this, but we ourselves, you know, we're not empowering ourselves, and a lot of those protests are very emotional. That's why they die out. So without that type of infrastructure building in our own communities, and we try that. I'm not just talking hot air because def- we definitely tried that in the Black Panther Party. We did it in Plainfield. We had our own breakfast program, our own free, uh, clothing drive, political education class. We built a community uh, a medical center, medical uh, clinic from the ground up there with nurses volunteer. And poetically, I work at a free health clinic now. Back then, it was mostly sickle cell anemia. Now it's HIV and other STIs and things of that nature. But um, so I'm still in that mindset of really working on that level in the community. But we have to build in a very professional way, you know, a professional way. We have to train ourselves, take our study, our, our bright students and our minds to go through these universities and turn that energy back into our communities. And not just give to the superstructure. We have to do. We have to do this because the world recognized, and you better believe the government recognized that our our our, our crap is so crappy, you know, that we don't have no oomph behind anything we're talking about. I've been overseas, brothers, you know, numerous times to champion campaign for political prisons. Come back with all that experience, and there's no infrastructure to do anything with the information I'm bringing back. There's nothing there. You know, to even make it resonate to build anything. So we are at a point now, and that's why this tribunal, I hope, is important because hopefully because of the organizing we did, we can launch, you know, a a massive national initiative that's going to be across the country with people Senate, and and people can check that out on the uh, the website. That's actually the question that I was going to ask you uh, is about the tribunal. We've spoken about it here on the program a few times. We've also had Brother Tag on as well to talk about the circumstances with, uh, in the spirit of Mandela, which is a tribunal that will it's indicting the United States on charges of crimes against humanity. And on behalf of the abolition, the Abolish Slavery National Network, I've even attended meetings where you know we've had discussions about being inclusive of slavery abolition as well in these crimes against humanity, and it was a positive. Uh, experience as well. Uh, I believe you got a right. special event coming up in a few days on the 21st. Uh, could you briefly tell us a little bit about what it is that's going on yes. with the tribunal, where you're at, and what's happening on the 21st? Well, yes, it's the 22nd, the Friday, the 22nd. 22nd okay. Yes, that's that Friday, the 20th. We have a celebratory uh, intro into the tribunal, which will be that Saturday and Sunday, the, uh, the 23rd and 24th. 
Um, and it's an international tribunal. There's been tribunals before. There's been tribunals that charge genocide before. There's been tribunals that have championed the case of political prisons. However, this tribunal is unique in two basic ways, that we're utilizing it really, brothers, as an organizing tool. You know, the focus is the tribunal because when you talk about unity amongst people, theoretically you can talk about it until you, you fall out in exasperation and exhaustion. But when you have something you really work around, that to bring people together from different faiths and ideologies and perspectives and just the activists that want to be involved and just the teachers and, 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 and workers, shopkeepers and students and, and people lumping whatever, hanging on the street or whatever, they, whatever, you can bring them around an activity that they can all resonate about, resonate with. And this tribunal is doing just that. And so we're, we have this event. Yes, we are going to charge uh, genocide legally. is a legal slash political event. Genocide, and not only in not only in violation of the 1948 uh, convention or treaty uh, for the prevention of genocide, which the United States has signed onto, but also, but also domestically speaking, in violation of eight, Title 18, United States Code 1091, 18 U.S.C. 1091. It is a, a federal offense. You know, and who is going to be charged with that? Well, guess what, the United States government, you are. You know, if you killed somebody 10 years ago, 50 years ago, 100 years ago, 400 years ago, you know, and you haven't been brought to justice, you know, there is no statute of limitation on homicide slash genocide, and particularly when that homicide slash genocide continues to today. Particularly that. You have to answer to this. There's a punishment for that. And that punishment has to show itself in the signs of reparation in many, many different ways to change that. But more importantly, more importantly, the first thing I said was that we're organizing around it. The second unique factor, um, brothers and sisters listening, is that the outcomes for this tribunal, one of the outcomes, aside from ammunition and fuel for uh, accurate trajectories for reparation, but one of them is the establishment of a people's senate. And we didn't say United Front or anything like that. We use the word Senate because we want to be on the same par as the United States Senate and the House of Representatives in terms of its stature amongst the people. And we're, we're, build, we're driving this car as we're building it. We're building it as we're driving it. After the tribunal, we're, we're not just taking a document, a verdict to the United Nations Human Rights Council in the World Court. We're not just doing that. You know, and then have nothing happen, which is what usually happens. And then 50 years later, we can celebrate the 2021 International Tribunal. Remember that? Yeah, I remember that. It was really awesome. No, as Jalil Muntakin said, we are our own liberators. We are building a face amongst ourselves. Oh, and this may be horrible for me to say, if the international community didn't do anything as a result of our tribunal next weekend, it will serve for us as to establish us and give us some thrust in direction, establishing unity, cohesion amongst ourselves so that the sisters work in California that was on before me, the brothers work in New Jersey, we have a mechanism to really begin to connect these dots and give much more strength and power. We'll be able to educate people because we'll develop representation across the United States. I know I'm talking very visionary, but if you have no vision, you'll have nothing. And, 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 um, and this is what this tribunal is going to seek to do. And we're off to a 100% start with this. It's going to be powerful. It's going to be potent. If uh, the website I can give you in a minute, brother, you can go on that website, and you can see who the jurists are. They're from all over the world, India, France, all over Puerto Rico, 
Haiti, everywhere. The, the eyes of the world are going to be looking through their lens, you know, at what we do this weekend. And we are going to represent. We have attorney in Kichi Taifa, uh, uh, a new African sister, you know, in, in the Howard University's Law School under uh, Justin Stanford and, and Bill Keith Wilkinson and their students and many, many other lawyers that have been in the field that cultured and, and tendered this indictment. is over 90 pages. We're going to nail them to the cross. But the really is that um, we are already, we're just going to prove what's already been proven and known, but we're going to do it in such a way that activists and professors and schools and universities and colleges can utilize this information for the purpose of not only edification, but for movement building, movement building. So it's not just static, melodic time-based information. It's information that's worded in such a way that will motivate you and connect the dots that the sister in California, the brother in New Jersey, that's what's happening in other parts of the country can begin to slowly come together and we can create some strength. We have to do this. We have to do this. And if we don't, then, you know, we'll be right back where we started from, waiting for the next egregious act and then being on the streets protesting. And, uh, and now when then our kids is killing each other and what, just a lady getting ripped around the corner what is, and all this other stuff. What is the website you said that they can go and check out in order to uh, be up to date on what's happening with this tribunal? Two websites, very simple names. You can you don't even have to write it for real, for real. But uh, one is tribunal twenty 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 one dot com tribunal two zero two one dot com, and that will get open the door for you to not only see the charges and the outcomes, but also the bi the biographies of all the jurists. And the other website is just spiritofmandela.org, the, the, the coalition itself, which has a similar type of information on it. So tribunal2021.com, there you go. We're talking about tribunal, so tribunalwin2021.com. The other one is Spirit of Mandela. That's the coalition of sisters and brothers that put this together, spiritofmandela.org. One is .com, the other is .org, and you can get access to all the information. You can register. It's going to be held at the Malcolm X Betty Shabazz Education and Cultural Center in Harlem, New York, same place Audubon where uh, our sick, uh, husband Malik Shabazz was assassinated. Only so many people, 100 and some, can fit in there. So it's almost like a courtroom venue. Regardless of what court, what trial is on, Chauvin or O.J. Simpson, you know the world couldn't fit in the courtroom. But some people can and will. But the rest of the, the, rest of the people watch it from all around the world, from your kitchen, from your laptops, from your living room, from however you want to watch it. You can register. Uh, to, to do it is free, and uh, you can become a part of it. You can watch a couple of hours on Saturday or one hour in the afternoon. You can cut it up, dice it up however. You don't have to glue it, stay in all eight hours, which is cool if you do. But, you know, uh, we will be uh, letting everybody know that the uh, witnesses that's going to be testifying because you may just want to – oh, by the way, it's not just talking about political prisoners. We're talking about genocide. We're talking about police killings, mass incarceration, and the 13th Amendment issue – political prisoners, uh, environmental racism, and public health uh, issues that caused the trauma for the 400 years that we were just speaking about. So all these issues are wrapped up into this indictment, and it, it resonates with everybody in many different ways. Um, we have indigenous representation, uh, First Nation representation, and, of course, you know, representation of black and brown people. So, yeah, we want you to check it out. And not only that, to become a part of it even after it's moving forward because Believe me, sisters and brothers, that's when the real work begins. Building the tribunal was one thing. Now we're here. And now what we're going to do after this, so we have a golden opportunity to really put ourselves on the map in terms of working unity, 
working unity and, and beginning to, when we say demand the freedom of political prisons, right now, if you said that right now, even on this program, it will mean nothing to any state rep or federal representative. It mean absolutely nothing to use the word demand. You ain't demanding nothing, for real. But when this is over with, looking five, ten years down the road, somebody said, well, why that long? Well, you know, we'll make it happen in 365 days, and that's my thing. You know, but looking down the road, one day when we say demand, you will know that this is demand. It is. We have to work towards Yes. I really got to wrap it up uh, so we can close out the program. We've only got about 15 minutes left and one more segment that we have to do. I so appreciate you joining us tonight. Let's not make this the last time. This, this is That's going right. to be an ongoing thing. So could you please come back periodically and just let us know what's happening? I guess Tag had reached out to me, Brother Tag, and you can reach out to me directly or through Tag. I'm at your service always. Thank you so much, because as you said, this does include the slavery abolition movement as well. Um, so we want to make sure that uh, we get this thing ended, because we don't see how we can move forward as long as slavery is legal in the United States. Uh, and uh, we'll be working on that project <laughs> right alongside you, brother. So thank you so much for joining us on Abolition today. Uh, what I want to get into next is I did want to put some time aside to talk about the kids in Tennessee. Um, you know, we played the clip earlier, and what we found out was apparently in this Tennessee county, they have this judge who is incarcerating minor children, seven, eight, nine years old. You heard her on the clip in her own voice, right? Uh, and, and, you know, below 18 at a rate that is uh, just mind-blowing. The national rate for incarceration of the children is 5%. But in this particular county, it's 48%. Um, and it reminds me a lot of the school to prison, uh, not school to prison, the kids for cash story that occurred in Pennsylvania. If you remember, two judges mm-hmm. were indicted for taking kickbacks, for giving these kids to the for-profit private prison, Merkel, at the time. Uh, and they were sending them in there for the most ridiculous things, you know, like uh, – like they're doing right now with these kids in Tennessee. Uh, so writing on your desk, uh, there was 11 children that were arrested for watching a fight between a three-year-old and a five-year-old. And they had 11 children, like eight years old, nine years old, who saw this and they incarcerated them on some bogus-ass charge. This is how they were rolling over there. Um, I saw this article in addition to the one that everybody's familiar with where it says that the county has a well let's start from the beginning. It says Rutherford County illegally arrested and jailed juveniles for decades, according to a federal judge. The county has agreed to pay up to eleven million dollars in to settle a class action lawsuit brought on behalf of the juveniles. The final amount of the county will pay depends on the number of valid claims made. Those who qualify could receive nearly $5,000 for every time they were illegally detained. But finding those people has not been easy. Attorneys who work on the case for years are trying to alert people about the settlement and have offered to help them fill out the required paperwork for free. Now, that's saying so much. First of all, they're not keeping records of whose kids they arrested because apparently they don't have no records of who they were. They don't know. So what the hell is going on here in this place? Um, 
and there was other uh, stories that I found that supported the idea that the industry they're using with the juveniles is a for-profit industry and that these people are directly feeding them children. We're talking about slavery and human trafficking again, just like they had in Pennsylvania in 2004 with those two judges out there. Yusuf? You know, uh, I'm, I'm going to reserve comment. I completely agree with everything. Is we're coming up against a hard stop. I know. <laughs> in two minutes. We'll have to continue this one next week, Max, to, to really right, give it its right. just due so we can flesh this out. All right, no doubt. And we do have a couple of tracks that we have wanted to play uh, tonight. We'll carry them over for next week, too. And then look out for our, uh, October 31st broadcast, which is our season finale. I'm, I'm thinking of a, a – we're going to go out with a bang. That's what I'm thinking. What you think? You said go out with a bang? We have to. <laughs> Listen, it wouldn't be us if we didn't. It wouldn't be us if we didn't. All right, so uh, go ahead and get into our final segments. We, we still got a little bit left for you. we just going to give some shout-outs to our sponsors. And uh, after that, we're going to have our Bridging the Gap. There's two uh, anniversaries we're celebrating in the past 48 hours. One is uh, the anniversary of John Brown's raid on Harper's Ferry. And I was blessed to see uh, a brother just uh, day before yesterday, I believe, Brother Lucas Allen perform mm-hmm. uh, as John Brown. And he kind of brought John Brown back from the grave to support the abolitionist movement of today. That was pretty awesome. You can find that on our page. And also, it's Black Poetry Day. So, you know, share some black poetry out there. And uh, yours truly happens to be one. So feel free to grab some of my content and share some poetry out there today. (laughs) Shameless plug, Uh, brother. Shameless plug. Shameless plug. (laughs) Me and Travel got some beautiful poetry out there. Uh, I really appreciate our guest today, Brother Jihad and uh, Sister Shay. And uh, please don't be strangers. And we'll see you. I'll see you again next week. You soon. Sure. So we'd like to close out uh, thanking our sponsors and partners, Jailhouse Lawyers Speak, I Am We Ubuntu Prison Advocacy Network, SEMA Urge, Quakers Uplifting Racial Justice, the Paul Cuffey Abolitionist Center, Prismatic Dreams, the Black Talk Radio Network, uh, remember to subscribe to our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash abolition today. That page contains all the news, information, and music you hear on this program. We're also available on all major podcast platforms and our simulcast on the Black Talk Radio Network. Remember to join the movement at abolishslavery.us and in theexception.com. Tonight's Bridging the Cap, it's Ozzie Davis reading Frederick Douglass, and this is part Thirteen from that series of Ozzie Davis reading uh, The Life of Frederick Douglass. This segment is John Brown's Body, and that's going to be followed by Glory, Glory, Hallelujah, uh, Helmut Loti. So we'll be back next week, uh, inshallah, God willing, September 24th with another master class on slavery abolition. Uh, thank you again to our guests. Thank you for all tuning in. Until next week, think about abolition today. Peace and blessings be upon you all. Abolition. 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 Though in Canada and under British law, it was not impossible that I might be kidnapped and taken to Virginia. England had given me shelter and protection when the slave hounds were on my tracks 14 years before, and her gates were still open to me now that I was pursued in the name of Virginia. So on the 12th of November, 1859, I took passage from Quebec on board the steamer Scotia, 
bound for Liverpool. On reaching Liverpool, I learned that England was nearly as much alive as to what had happened at Harper's Ferry as the United States, and I was immediately called upon in different parts of the country to speak on the subject of slavery, and especially to give some account of the men who had thus flung away their lives in a desperate attempt to free the slaves. After six months in England, news reached me from home of the death of my beloved daughter Annie, the light and life of my home. Deeply distressed by this bereavement and acting upon the impulse of the moment, regardless of the peril, I at once resolved to return home and took the first outgoing steamer for Portland, Maine. After a rough passage of seventeen days, I reached home by way of Canada. Great changes had now taken place in the public touching the John Brown raid. Virginia had satisfied her thirst for blood. She had not given Captain Brown the benefit of a reasonable doubt, but hurried him to the scaffold in panic-stricken haste. Emerson's prediction that Brown's gallows would become like the cross was already being fulfilled. The old hero in the trial hour had behaved so grandly that men regarded him not as a murderer, but as a martyr. His body was in the dust, but his soul was marching on. In a letter to a group of abolitionists assembling on July 4, 1860, to do honor to the memory of John Brown, I wrote, To have been acquainted with John Brown, shared his counsels, enjoyed his confidence, and sympathized with the great objects of his life and death, I esteem as among the highest privileges of my life. We do but honor to ourselves in doing honor to him, for it implies the possession of qualities akin to his. Though called home from Europe by one of the saddest events that can afflict the domestic circle, my presence here was fortunate, since it enabled me to participate in the most important and memorable presidential canvass ever witnessed in the United States, and to labor for the election of a man who in the order of events was destined to do a greater service to his country and to mankind than any man who had gone before him in the presidential office. That man was Abraham Lincoln, the candidate of the then young, growing, and united Republican Party. Against both Stephen A. Douglas and John C. Breckinridge, candidates of the divided Democratic Party, Abraham Lincoln proposed his grand historic doctrine of the power and duty of the national government to prevent the spread and perpetuity of slavery. Into this contest I threw myself with firmer faith and more ardent hope than ever before, and what I could do by pen or voice to achieve the election of Lincoln was done with a will. The most remarkable and memorable feature of this presidential campaign was that it was prosecuted under the portentous shadow of a threat, leading public men of the South openly proclaimed that they would proceed to take the slaveholding states out of the Union in the event of the election of Abraham Lincoln. This threat frightened the timid, but stimulated the brave, and the result was the triumphant election of Abraham Lincoln. John Brown's body lies a moldering in the grave. John Brown's body lies a moldering in the grave. John Brown's body lies a moldering in the grave. 
but his soul is marching on. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Glory, glory, hallelujah. But his soul is marching on. John Brown died that the slave might be free. John Brown died that the slave might be free. John Brown died that the slave might be free. But his soul is marching on. Now has come our glorious jubilee. Now has come the glorious jubilee. Now has come the glorious jubilee. But his soul.